This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Every time he sees a triangle these days, my 10-year-old son points and says, the Illuminati. This is a meme that he and all his friends have absorbed from YouTube. It's interesting that several centuries after the Illuminati first appeared as basically an idealistic secret boys club followed by the Freemasons, these kinds of shadowy organizations still exert so much power on our imaginations. That's because power doesn't always come in the shape of queens, presidents, CEOs, or members of parliament. Often, it exists in the more or less invisible relationships between people. My guest today is renowned historian Neil Ferguson. His new book, The Square and the Tower, Networks and Hierarchies from the Freemasons to Facebook, looks at the two ancient power structures that continue to move the world today. Welcome to Think Again, Neil. Uh, My pleasure. So is YouTube wrong? Are secret organizations not, in fact, running everything? Well, it would be probably going better if they were. But uh, the the sad truth is that they're not. The Illuminati don't exist anymore, I checked. (laughs) There are other organizations that are occasionally uh, attributed with great power behind the scenes. The Bilderberg Group, the World Economic Forum, the Rothschilds, George Soros, I could go on. The conspiracy theorists are quite creative in the the ways that they explain the world. But when you encounter those organizations and people, it's a little disappointing to find that they aren't in control at all. In fact, they're these days in an enormous permanent state of anxiety because the world is so clearly not under their control. I think that the interesting thing is that your your young son has picked up on the Illuminati, an, an organization which serious historical research shows existed for a brief period from the mid-1770s until the mid-1780s in Bavaria, with right. a, a membership less than 2,000, and uh, and was closed down by the Bavarian authorities as subversive and, and essentially ceased to exist. And yet, if you go online, not just to YouTube, but anywhere and search Illuminati, you will get an extraordinary array of conspiracy theories of varying degrees of lunacy about the Illuminati and how they're really in charge. So to me, the question is, why are we or so many people drawn to this notion that some secret network is really in control? That's the interesting thing. Indeed. And one thing that I wonder about both the Illuminati and the Freemasons is whether part of the power they exert on our imaginations is is also about their iconography, which they very deliberately both connect themselves with sort of semi-mystical symbols. And I think there's a strong hunger in the human imagination to believe that there is something through the looking glass, you know, on the other side of reality. That's right. The Illuminati and the Freemasons were linked. The Freemasons had become a really very widespread network of, of sociability 
uh, in 18th century Europe and in the British colonies in the New World. And what's interesting about Freemasonry was the way it combined a certain Enlightenment cast of mind. Uh, this was a, a network that didn't pay attention to social rank. Right. Didn't distinguish aristocrats from the bourgeoisie. Often was a, a conduit for Enlightenment ideas, uh, skepticism about uh, Christian doctrine. And yet at the same time, it dressed itself up and in all kinds of mystical mumbo jumbo. Right. About the uh, ancient history of, of masonry, all made up all concocted in a series of 18th century books. And I think that does, as you say, stem from our innate desire for myth and mystery. The banality of human life is never quite enough. <laughs> and so we want to dress up and wear leather aprons and, and claim some lineage going back to biblical times or even ancient Egypt. So... And then there was also the the secretiveness that, that right. one had to be initiated uh, into Masonic lodges. I'm talking about this in the past tense. Of course, they they still exist. I mean, Masonic lodges were in the news in the UK only the other day because the Guardian splashed on the existence of new lodges amongst London journalists and politicians. My father-in-law in Turkey is a Freemason as well. So apparently they're very active as, there as well. And he's shared with me some of the surprising syncretic religious concepts that they've adopted. Well, it's a movement that had deep roots in Scotland. It of really, course, yeah. in some ways originated there in, in, in 18th century Scotland. And so it, I, I shouldn't have been surprised that my great uncle Jimmy was a mason, but we only found that out at his funeral when they all turned up in their regalia. The Illuminati were designed to infiltrate the Masonic lodges with a more radical version of Enlightenment ideology. Their leader was almost certainly a full-blown religious skeptic, perhaps even an atheist. And so the Illuminati were a sort of a network within the network, okay. uh, trying to spread their radical ideology through an existing network of Masonic lodges. And as I mentioned, they, they essentially were shut down in the 1780s. But shortly after that, after the French Revolution, there were some uh, very popular publications that alleged the Illuminati had played some nefarious role in the French Revolution. And the worse that revolution went, the more bloody it became the more shrill the accusations got. And what's fascinating is that in the early United States, Masons went from being bastions of the revolutionary movement. Many of the founding fathers had, had been in Masonic lodges, including George Washington, to being pariahs. And there was a huge right. backlash against Freemasonry in the early Republic, culminating in the formation of an anti-Masonic party. And so... That led to a certain rewriting of history so that most mainstream accounts of the American Revolution don't say much, if anything at all, about the Masonic connections between so many of the founding fathers. As historians, professional historians, vacated this territory, uh, it was occupied by the conspiracy theorists. Right. And so part of what I'm talking about in the square and the tower is, is a, a kind of contested area whether you're talking about the Masons, the Illuminati, or the Jewish banking network that the Rothschilds belong to, there's been a tendency for amateurs, uh, often conspiracy theorists, to dominate the writing. 
and for respectable historians to run away and not want to get too close to these topics. Uh, because after all, if you write a book about Freemasons, um, and my book has Freemasons in the subtitle, you might end up in a part of the bookshop that you don't particularly want to <laughs> right. end up in. Uh, so it's been, to my mind, a fascinating thing that social networks, some secret, some not, have been neglected by respectable historians who much prefer to go to state archives, national archives, and work with the documents that hierarchical things like governments leave in a nice orderly state. And that, I think, has led to a great skew in the way that we think about the past, because the historical profession privileges hierarchical structures like states right. and, and corporations, and it neglects anything that the conspiracy theorists have got their hands on. So it's only very recently that serious scholarship was done on the Illuminati, and, and I was extremely excited to find it, because, I mean, some of this stuff has barely seen the light of day and is is going on in, in really quite arcane corners of German academia, because it was hard to do. I mean, the, the documents relating to the Illuminati had all been scattered somewhere in the uh, archives of Masonic lodges. The Bavarians had confiscated some when they closed down the Illuminati. Right. So it's just technically difficult to research this stuff, but it's not impossible. And when you do that, you find that behind the conspiracy theory, there is something there. It's not like they never existed. It's just that what existed is in in really stark contrast to what you'll find in Dan Brown's novels. So there is this ongoing relationship between networks and hierarchies throughout history. Can, can you talk about sort of why those two structures and how they interrelate and how they, how they push and pull against one another? Well, I should, I suppose, be frank that the title, The Square and the Tower, deliberately creates a false dichotomy in the mind of the reader a dichotomy between the square where social networks happen and the tower right. where hierarchical structures of power reside. And, right. and the book then leads you to the, the revelation that it's a false dichotomy and that actually what we're really talking about is a continuum of different forms of human organization, all of which are networks. It's just that some networks are very hierarchical and some are very distributed or decentralized. That's the real story. But I think instinctively most readers, unless they've already dipped their toes into social network analysis or any branch of network science, get the idea that there's a difference between a hierarchical organization and a social network. Right. Calling it the square and the tower helped for me because it took me on a sentimental journey to the town of Siena in Italy, mm. where the juxtaposition of the square and the tower is extraordinarily stark as well as rather beautiful. You've got the Piazza del Campo, famous for the, the horse races that they run there, but also the place where the local people socialize and, right. and occasionally trade. And then you've got the Torre del Manjo, which is this enormously thin, tall tower that overshadows it and at one time housed the, the government of Siena. So the, the dichotomies in the, in the realm of network science, it's a false dichotomy. It's all about networks. But in terms of how we think about history, it's a real dichotomy. And, and that's why I decided to start there, begin with the distinction, even tell a, a sort of story against myself by admitting that I'm really a networks person and not a hierarchy person at all, and then lead the reader into this slightly more technical literature, which I find completely fascinating. So that by the end of the book, you, you get everything in which humans are working together is a network and every network can be graphed. Right. It's just that some networks 
are distinctly more hierarchical in their architecture than others. And that's really the, the key analytical insight. What role does corruption, the idea of corruption play here in terms of the, the fluidity or the spectrum between what we think of as more purely hierarchical and more network structures? A good way to think about this is the contrast between a, an ideal free market and a, a social network in which simple supply and demand are not predominant. Let okay. me try and dig a little deeper there. In the world of Chicago economics, or indeed the classical economics of Adam Smith, the human being is an individual with a utility function, and, and in markets, human beings uh, meet and they exchange. Some exchange their labor for, for wages, others are swapping one form of goods for another. Right. And ultimately, cash is king, and in the free market, prices are set by supply and demand. Very rarely, and by the way, Adam Smith acknowledges this in, in The Wealth of Nations, very rarely is that what the real world is like. Very often, we make decisions about the allocation of resources on the basis of our social network within which we may privilege family, uh, friends. Chinese have a word for this, guanxi, the notion that ultimately it's connections that matter more than the fairness that's implicit in a free market. Another way of thinking about this is in the realm of education. Ideally, an educational institution, an elite one like Stanford, where I'm sitting, would select students on the basis of their ability without right. regard for any other considerations. But anyone who's spent any time at a major American university knows that admissions are not done that way and that guanxi, uh, in the Chinese term, that connections do play a part in who gets to study at a, an elite university. And so that is that is a kind of corruption. And I think the very notion of corruption, the way that you use the term, originates in liberalism, in classical liberalism. It, it originates in a kind of complaint that resources were not being allocated fairly either through the market or through merit, they were being allocated on the basis of favoritism, of privilege, in other words, of social networks. And so that, I think, is an extremely important reason why, over time, a suspicion of networks became entrenched in, uh, particularly in the English-speaking world, where there's a, there's a sense, which is, I think, integral to Anglo-American liberalism, the the world ought not to be run by cozy networks. It ought to be a transparent place where fairness and merit prevail. So we're accustomed at this point in history to thinking of ourselves as sort of having invented the idea of networks. We, we think of ourselves as moving toward a more and more networked society, more and more networked world. To what extent does that align with your research and what, what you write about in the book. It doesn't align with it at all. The great claim of Silicon Valley is to have made the world anew. And if you come here, and I came here about a year and a half ago, and try to interest the masters of Silicon Valley in history, their response will be history. That started with the Google IPO and everything before that's the Stone Age. Facebook invented social networks, or maybe it was MySpace, but Facebook did it better. When you say 
hold on, social networks have existed throughout human history and large social networks were possible without any technology at all. People are generally incredulous. Right. And the reason for writing the book was to try to challenge that and, and say, I'm sorry, uh, ingenious as your technology may be, history applies to you too, just as it applied to Wall Street. I don't know, 10 or more years ago when I was on the East Coast, the arrogance was on Wall Street. And I wrote a book, The Ascent of Money, which essentially said, history applies to you and there will be a financial crisis. There always is. And there was. And when I came here, I had the same feeling. I encountered tremendous arrogance, a kind of resistance is futile mentality that, of course, our apps will take over the world. And when they do, when everybody is connected, when everybody is on Facebook, that will be awesome. There'll be one global community and everything will be great. And my response to that was, that's insane. That's historically completely implausible. So, so the book tries to show that we've run experiments with really large-scale social networks before. We didn't have the internet, but that didn't matter. You can do it with a printing press. You could even do it just with the written word. And the result is never to produce a single homogenous cluster of happy, clappy individuals in a global community. That never happens. Because hierarchical structures reassert themselves because of the chaos that a large-scale social network like the internet creates? It's not necessarily even that. It's inherent in the way that social networks form that they are not egalitarian and they quickly become hierarchical. This is a, something that I learned from the work of the brilliant Hungarian physicist uh, Laszlo Barabasi, whose book Linked is, for me, one of the great works in this field. And Barabasi shows that as social networks form, because of what's known as preferential attachment, as new nodes are added to the network, as new individuals join the social network, they, they don't want to be joined to the nobodies. They want to be joined to the people who already are well-connected. And so very quickly, as social networks form, and you can see this at any scale, it's true in a high school amongst friends, and it's true uh, on Facebook, there end up being a very few nodes with a tremendous number of edges of relationships and a great many with hardly any. And it is not to use the technical term, normally distributed. It's not like a bell curve. So without there necessarily even being anarchy, it's not like everybody goes, ah, oh, gee, this is just too anarchic. We should really put somebody in charge here. Nobody, nobody makes that decision. It just happens that spontaneously Facebook or any other large social network becomes, to use the technical term, scale-free. It becomes uh, an extraordinarily unequal structure governed by something close to a power law. So what is it like to be a historian in Silicon Valley? Let's go a little deeper into that. Oh, great. I mean, it's fantastic because one should go where one's a scarce resource. And although there are historians in this neck of the woods, there's certainly not a great sense that history has a big part to play in Silicon Valley, even if it has some role at Stanford. And so for me, it's been... A tremendous opportunity to try to show the new masters of the universe that history applies to them. And indeed, I wrote the book with quite a lot of help and encouragement from people in the technology business who were interested in this idea and who did find it illuminating. For example, Eric Schmidt was somebody who took an interest in the book and found it very interesting to think that actually the printing press had 
been essentially the the internet or the personal computer of the 16th and 17th centuries, and that therefore we could learn some lessons from earlier eras. And the central analogy of the book is that, that we are essentially living through a speeded up version of what happened to Europe when the printing press was distributed through through European cities. Very dramatic changes in the speed with which information can be disseminated and the creation of new networks that really weren't possible before. So I think one key argument the book makes is we shouldn't have expected a hyper-connected world to be a stable place or a place where consensus prevails. We should have expected polarization to happen because that's what history was telling us. And it's also what network science says. I mean, social uh, network science has has identified the tendency for social networks to self-segregate, to polarize. For decades, it was a well-established insight of, of sociology back in the 1970s. Somehow in the excitement of building the internet, maybe because the people doing the heavy lifting were computer scientists and engineers who didn't take those history courses or really didn't bother with sociology, this was all forgotten. And everybody's totally surprised in 2016. Oh, my goodness me. The social network's incredibly polarized. Oh, goodness. Fake news goes viral instead of true stuff. And and my, my response to their shock is, you're, you're shocked? This, this is a surprise to you? I mean, where have you where have, what were you reading all this time? And the answer is, we weren't reading anything. We were just writing code. Is there anything that Silicon Valley ought to learn or that we as a society can learn from this study of networks as we move forward into this brave technological future to, to do things better? We've got to learn fast. We face a major crisis, which everybody is still underestimating. Uh, with a few exceptions. It cannot be a sustainable state of affairs that a tiny number of quasi-monopolies dominate the public sphere in a democracy. And the best illustration of this is Facebook. 45% of Americans get their news from Facebook. And that gives Mark Zuckerberg more power than any newspaper publisher in American history. William Randolph Hearst never had that big a share of the news market, even at the height of his power. And we have essentially acquiesced in a situation in which one private company not only is the dominant source of of news for many people, but also has accumulated such extraordinary resources of data about the users of Facebook that it knows more about the citizens than the citizens themselves, to say nothing of the federal government. This can't be sustained because... The power to tweak the algorithm, which Zuckerberg has, and he boasts about, is a a power too great for any private company to exert. The the tweaking of the algorithm determines what appears in the newsfeed. And each individual has a personalized newsfeed, a version of reality that the algorithm controls. And we know from the incentives that Facebook and the other network platforms have, the incentives to make money from advertising, that the algorithm does not prioritize truth. It prioritizes things that engage the user's interest. And it just so happens, because we are a lapsed species, uh, whatever our stated intentions, that we're strongly attracted by fake news and extreme views and dreadful stuff. So we've, we've set up a kind of new version of the doomsday machine. From the vantage point of democracy, we've created engines of polarization, engines of dissemination of of fake news and 
I think also ultimately engines of, of mass manipulation that are entirely unaccountable unless you think that Facebook shareholders are a sufficient kind of accountability. And we are sleepwalking towards an even bigger problem than we saw in 2016. 2016 was bad enough. I mean, to have the Russians hack the networks of both the major parties in an election and then disseminate deliberately inflammatory content through all the major network platforms, that was outrageous. Nothing has changed to prevent that happening again. I think until people get their heads around the problem that has been created, I, I think the problem was not the result of malice. I think in some ways the people who built Facebook were well-intentioned. The trouble is that good intentions aren't enough. If the net result is the creation of something this powerful, there needs to be some response. The trouble is that people who make regulations, legislators and, and regulators in Washington, I think are unequal to the task of fixing the problem. And so what happens is Facebook and Google rain money on Washington to avert any kind of regulation that would impede the money that they're making. And the people in Washington in the swamp nod when Mark Zuckerberg says he's going to fix Facebook. They all nod sagely. Well done. But that is not going to fix the problem. It is simply going to be a PR exercise designed to make us lapse back into acquiescence. You answered my next question, which was going to be something about whether whether we needed some hierarchical structure to reassert itself as against the utopian communalism of Silicon Valley, which has turned into massive power concentrated in a few hands. Um, but you're basically saying that's not really possible because the larger they get, the more money they have, the better able right. they are to control what happens. Scott Galloway at New York University has just published a long essay in Esquire arguing for the breakup of the big tech companies. And he's somebody who knows the tech industry very well indeed. It's quite a, a remarkable step for him to take. I don't think it's going to happen. I think attempts to use antitrust to break up any of the, the major network companies will fail in the courts, partly because the way American law evolved on the issue of antitrust is highly advantageous to Silicon Valley. If the test is, are consumers worse off because of these monopolies, the network platforms will win. The Amazon will say, we're great for consumers. Stuff is cheaper <laughs> thanks to us. Books are cheaper thanks to us. And the case will, it'll last less than a day before it's thrown out. The other problem is the money. I mean, the, the sheer resources that these companies can deploy in lobbying can't be overstated. So... While I can see antitrust getting ahead of steam, not only amongst progressives, but now with the likes of Scott Galloway weighing in, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think it'll happen, certainly with a Republican administration in Washington, because antitrust just not a Republican thing. I think the most that can happen is that, if, no, if nothing else, the regulatory playing field needs to be leveled because there's a huge anomaly at the heart of the American system, uh, which dates back to the mid-1990s when it all seemed like startups and cyberspace was a libertarian utopia. In that legislation, the Communications and Decency Act, Title 230, network platforms, technology companies were exempted for liability for any content that appeared on their websites. 
unlike traditional publishers who are liable when they publish political content and who are subject to some regulation. And I think the exemption that, that Silicon Valley got itself back then from any kind of liability for the content on their platforms has to go. It has to go. It's indefensible now. Apart from the fact that it, it's just helping them kill traditional publishing, it's impossible to claim that Facebook is not a content publisher. It's the biggest content publisher in history. So we've got to, we've got to get rid of that. And I think that's eminently within the scope of a conservative interpretation of how the economy should be run. We should believe in a level playing field. There isn't one. At the moment, it's completely skewed in favour of Silicon Valley. So that seems to me like the way to go, because... Once you create liability for content, then a world of, of legal jeopardy exists for Facebook. And it's no longer able to say, oh, it was Russian content. Oh, we're sorry. The algorithm didn't spot that. Ah, that's life. They can't say that anymore because there will, there will be consequences for publishing stuff that is obviously designed to be subversive or, or stuff that leads to, to harm. It's right. been impossible to show in the courts that harm arising from content online is anybody's fault except the sucker who suffers the harm. That's the thing that I think has to change. I think this is a good moment for us to careen off in a completely different direction. This is uh, the second half of the show in which uh, Neil and I will watch surprise clips from Big Think's archives on subjects that we are not necessarily prepared to discuss. The first one here is... Derek Thompson, who's a senior editor of The Atlantic, and it's titled Decoding Popularity, Why Successful People Don't Try Appealing to Everyone's Tastes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that we have a terrible misconception about popularity. I think that often we define popularity in a majoritarian way. We say that in order for something to be popular, most people have to like it. A majority of the population has to like it. But think about this. If a book sells one million copies in a year, it is a runaway bestseller that by definition, 99.5% of Americans did not buy. The biggest movie of 2016, Rogue One, the Star Wars film, made enough money for about 40, 35 to 40% of American adults to have bought a ticket and seen it. That means the vast majority of Americans did not see the most popular movie. You could say the same for television. You could say the same for music, that lots of things that we consider popular are not majoritarily popular at all. They aren't mainstream by this old-fashioned definition. Instead, they are cults. 
that culture itself is cults from top to bottom. It is increasingly, in this moment now where the mainstream has been completely shattered and has been totally nichified, that culture is cults all the way down. And I think that in thinking about this from a marketing standpoint, and you're thinking about your total addressable market, your total addressable market is not America. It's not the world. It's not any enormous group of people. Your total addressable market is probably really, really small. And rather than go big with a general message that you hope is going to embrace everybody, rather embrace the idea that the mainstream is dead, that it's all cults, and that you have to find your cult and hit them very, very clearly with a message that is cultish, that says you are special because the mainstream is wrong. Remember, that is the definition of what cultish thinking is. It's a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. So in order for people to feel like a message is reaching them, it helps for that message to tell them not only who they are, but who they're not, how they are different, how they're special, and how the vast majority of people, how the amorphous mainstream doesn't get them. Um, I sometimes talk about this as uh, online, in terms of online marketing, is the, the Tokyo example. Um, I went to Tokyo two years ago, and a friend who was telling me about how awesome Tokyo is said, there's this great bar that sells amazing uh, Japanese whiskey and also uh, vinyl records. And I was like, what a strange idea for a place to only sell vinyl records and whiskey. And he said, yeah, it does sound weird, but remember that, J that Tokyo is a metro area of 35 million people. So even if the store only applies to like 0.5% of the, of the Tokyo metropolitan population, it's still an incredibly popular store. So the internet is Tokyo. The internet is this infrastructure that is connecting billions and billions of people. And you don't need to reach all of them all at once in order to make something that's popular. In fact, it makes much more sense to try to reach 0 0.2, 0.01% of them with a message that is really clear and very specific and very special and understand that even if I get this microscopic percentage of the total addressable market to love what I'm doing, that is popularity. Within the infrastructure created by the network platforms, you can eke out your existence as a purveyor of Japanese whiskey and vinyl records, but you will not be Jeff Bezos. And indeed, one of the consequences of the dominance of the network platforms, the fact that they got to dominance to Zipf's law. Dominance. Zipf's law says that in a networked market, the winner gets 90%, runner-up gets 9%, and everybody else gets 0.9%. The result of the, the emergence of monopoly platforms that really do have not just a majority of the population, but nearly everybody right. on the platform, is that the small players down in the tails of the distribution, the authors, the guitarists, those people get paid less because the price of a song or a book has been crushed. This was why Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, was almost hazardously candid when it argued just a few years ago, the only kind of business you want to be in is a monopoly business. The worst kind of business you want to be in is the restaurant business. So if it's true that there is a market for whiskey and vinyl in Tokyo, that one restaurant will soon have 10 competitors driving down the price of the, the service. And the same applies to any industry. 
that is disrupted this way? From a cultural standpoint, that's a disaster. You're getting a winnowing of diverse ideas. You're losing a terrible right. amount. Because it's not that a thousand or a million flowers are blooming. It is that five giant technology platforms are establishing monopolies. And those of us who are in the creative business, who write books for a living, or I used to make TV documentaries, uh, we get paid less each for each project. That's the reality. And of course, that means that at some point, you can't afford to do it anymore. I stopped doing television documentaries because each one made less money than the one before as television was inexorably disrupted by the new network platforms. And I think that that effect must exist also in music. It must exist also in sports. You know, if everybody's watching the Super Bowl, what's the point really of going and playing for that, for that local team? Nobody plays soccer in the streets of Glasgow anymore. So wherever you look, it doesn't need to be high culture. It can just be soccer. The fundamental problem is that the dominance of the network platforms renders a great deal of marginal creative activity kind of pointless. So one is essentially faced with a choice, embracing poverty and marginalization or starting a mega business. There's a third one, which is very important in our very unequal society, and that is to be a rentier. You are the trust fund baby who can afford to make TV documentaries or write novels because essentially your very wealthy parents are going to you know basically pay for you and the creative arts have been taken over by those people and and that's not you know that that we shouldn't leave that out of account because the consequence of a very unequal society is inherited privilege it's going to become the case that the only people who can really survive as creative artists are people with a, an income stream from their parents the idea that, you know, there's all this raw talent out there and it gets discovered and, and it prevails that it's a meritocracy, that's all gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And given that the creative arts are often this vanguard for progressive liberal thinking, it's interesting that the creators should all be coming from privileged parents. The central hypocrisy of so-called progressivism in this country is that it is overwhelmingly subsidized by if not monopoly capitalism, then something quite close to it. And in order to be able to afford to spend your time denouncing the evils of globalization, you probably need to have a revenue stream from some very profitable globalized business coming to you. The real losers here are the, are the contrarians, the people who think against the current. They struggle because it is extremely hard to get that steady money that you need to pay the rent and educate and raise your kids without the kind of steady jobs uh, that can be provided in, say, academic life. So one of the interesting things that progressives did was take over universities so that anybody, I wanted to be a writer, but I realized that I had no money, so I needed a job. <laughs> being an academic is a pretty good way of financing yourself as a, as a writer because as long as you're prepared to teach the classes, there is a monthly check coming to the bank. But if the uh, academy is entirely taken over by progressives, then the person who wants to think against the current can't get those jobs. And I, that's a major, major problem. We have lost intellectual diversity in the places that are supposed to underwrite it. We've lost it completely. The contrarian thinker struggles in the marketplace for reasons that we've discussed, because the price of each book is somewhat less than the one before and can't get the kind of regular money that an academic institution would provide. Right. And I look at the younger generation of 
academically inclined of historians, and I, I wonder how they will possibly manage. Because my path has become a great deal harder to take for this generation. Even putting aside any lack of philosophical diversity in the academy, the academy barely exists in the way that it did a generation ago. Those jo I mean, many young aspiring pro professors are needing to go teach in Guam for a while before they can even begin their careers. We slightly overproduced PhDs in the humanities. <laughs> that was, that's a classic mistake. That's always happening. That happens throughout history because the market's very unresponsive and the people who want to enter this field tend not to do good research about their prospects. And so periodically people pour into particular fields to do PhDs and they only realize too late that there's way too many of them. And those people then have a choice, which is either they just go join the corporate world, but a little late in the game, or they become revolutionaries. That was what happened in Europe in the 19th century and in Russia in the 20th century. All these people got degrees and it's like, actually, there is no job for you, sorry. Um, at which point they became Bolsheviks. One dominant message in American culture still is follow your dream, pursue your passions, you know, and so many people are going in, have gone into the humanities just because they loved books and they thought that that would be yeah. the purest expression of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible advice. Follow your passion is, is really terrible advice. <laughs> no, do, do some market research. Think about secular trends. You're in a secular trend, whether you like it or not. What is it? That would be the first question that you should you should ask yourself before you choose a major in college or perhaps even before you apply to college. And, and nobody ever gives that advice. It's really difficult to figure out what the trend is. I remember having to have this conversation with myself at Oxford when I'd, I'd read history and there was this problem of how to survive. Uh, I refused to take money from my parents after I, I graduated. I figured they'd paid enough. And so I said to myself, well, what is likely to be important, it was the mid-1980s, what is likely to be important in the next 20 or 30 years? And I decided one was, answer one, economics. So I did an economic history PhD. And answer two was Germany, because Germany was obviously the most important country in Europe. So I learned German and I learned economics. And I wrote my doctoral dissertation about the German hyperinflation. I had no idea if anybody wanted a book on the German hyperinflation, but I knew that if I knew more about that than most of my contemporaries, then I would have something to do with myself by the time I was in my late 20s. And that's the way you have to think. It's not follow your passion. Is The question is, what are you going to do to pay the damn bills? And if you're not asking that question, it's because somebody's already paying them for you, in which case, where's your self-respect? I think let's draw a line under that and leave it there. Neil Ferguson, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And Neil's book is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Hierarchies from the Freemasons to Facebook. Thanks so much for being on Think Again. Thank you. So that wraps another episode of Think Again. I periodically invite anyone from the audience to email me and let me know what you thought about a particular episode or respond to an idea that struck you or just let me know what the show means in your life. And I get a fair number of emails and I respond to all of them. And I wanted to share one with you that came in about a week ago from Rob Bronson in Calgary, Alberta. I do have his permission to share it. 
Um, it made me especially happy, and so here you go. Subject line, thanks for making me cool. Hi, Jason. I just finished listening to your Jeremy Balenson and Carl Oven Nausgaard podcasts. Right away, I knew I had to share the virtual reality podcast with my son and the struggle slash winter podcast with my niece, an aspiring writer. Dave and Kaylee are in their late 20s. It's wonderful that I'm able to connect with them by sharing the great ideas I hear on Think Again. For the past couple of years, I've been saying I don't want to die a grumpy old man. If I keep on listening to your podcasts, I may even become cool. Rob. So thanks so much, Rob. And I invite anyone else to email me at jason at bigthink.com. And uh, if you are willing to have your email read on the show, please let me know that in the email. I uh, can't promise that that will necessarily happen, but uh, I'd like to be able to consider it. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join us.